going to read a little bit out of two and a little bit out of three. Uh, Colossae is uh, present day. It's not been uh, restored as the way some of these other churches have, these cities. It's just a big mound of dirt. Um, if you go and, and you start digging in the dirt, my goodness, you find all kinds of stuff. And, and it's a big mound because people would build cities where the other cities were. So they would build them on top. When one culture died off, that was a good spot to build a city, so they would build it right there because usually that meant there was water there, and that was important. So Colossae is just a big mound, um, and nothing there. It, it awaits uh, excavation and uh, restoration. All right, if you're able, would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come upon us today and give us insight. Uh, not just that these are words on a page, but this is your word, and it is your word to us today. So, Lord, open our eyes, open our hearts, send your Holy Spirit to provide us for all that we need as we come to your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So I'll read from Colossians chapter 2. Um, we're going to come back and read more of it later. I'm just going to read verse 12, and then we'll go over to chapter 3. So verse 12 of Colossians 2, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now that's pretty much what we covered last week in, in Romans, in our buried and resurrection, in our baptism and his resurrection. And now chapter 3, the first four verses. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Probably in the Puritan world, probably the biggest mind... Uh, was a guy named John Owen. He lived in the 1600s, and uh, he has uh, volumes and volumes, and it's this little bitty print in two columns on each page, and um, uh, it's just hard to read, okay? But it is so rich. It's so hard to read because there's so much there. He's got a, a book. It's called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, and most people buy it so that they can read the introduction, which explains it. Okay, now the introduction is 36 pages, I believe, long, and it tells you pretty much what you can expect in the book. Um, now, if you're diehard and want to read the book, it is great, it is rich. Um, most of us read the introduction. Okay, uh, but he has, in, in, in one of his volumes uh, on the spiritual life, in, the, in chapter 7, or volume 7 is called On Spiritual Mindedness, he asks this question. And the first time I, I read it, I just went through it like, like you do, and, and you know, some things hit you and some things don't. Well, I went right through this, and then the second time I read it, I was, I was just, uh, what's the word I want, gobsmacked or something? I was just so, so shocked by the simplicity of this question, but the fact that it cut right to the heart of every believer. And that question that Owen asks is this, what do you think about when you are not thinking about anything in particular? What do you think about when you're not thinking about anything in particular? So there you are, and you've got a few moments, and nothing's going on, and your mind's just wondering, does it go to Alabama football? 
Does it go to the grocery list? Does it go to the chores? I wonder when the last time I changed the oil was. Or does it go to, is the grass high enough that it can hide a small child yet, or should I let it go another few days out in the yard? Where does it go? And his question is really for the believer. When you are not thinking about anything in particular, does your mind easily go to Christ? Does a song of spiritual significance come to your mind? Does something from the radio that you heard or something that you read, does, does it flow into your mind as a believer? And, and this, is, this is a measuring rod for where we are spiritually, and it's, it's a very important but very simple question that serves about our spiritual mindedness, our spiritual mindedness. Do we find ourselves singing? Do we find ourselves thinking about Christ? Now, I don't want, it, it, you may think, well, Randy, gee, it sounds so holy and pietistic. I mean, is, is my mind supposed to be set on the things of Christ all the time? Well, there's supposed to be enough of that stuff in there that when you have some silence in your life, they bubble up. They begin to bubble up. Okay, and Paul in this passage in Colossians, I think in, in chapter 3, would ask us such a question. He would ask us such a question. He is concerned about the development of the spiritual mind. Now, in our contemporary world, uh, probably the best person along these lines is a guy named Harry Blameyers. Harry Blameyers was a student of C.S. Lewis, and in 49, he wrote his first book, and he wrote several books after that up into the 70s, and they all deal with the Christian mind. And I've talked about Blameyers before. And it, it deals with the way that we think, the way that we determine reality, and the way that we act. So we have to ask ourselves this question, is the way that we think determined by the world around us, or is it determined by Christ? Okay, it's, it's very simple there. And he just, uh, I think, takes the, the, the church to task that we have a Christianized secular view. We do not have a Christian view. We have a Christianized secular view. We have taken the view of the world around us on morality and ethics and uh, social things and political things. And we have taken their view and we have added Christ to it. And we feel good about it. We have not taken Christ's view into the world sufficiently to impact the world for the things of Christ. We've said, well, that's the way the world is. So how can I live with it? In a Christian eyes way. Well, I will add these things to it. Mm. It's not a question of what we believe. It's what Christ teaches. And do we move forward with what Christ teaches? Or are we driven by the, the mores and the ethics of our present secular culture? Now, Blameyers, in all of his works, and there, there are other people who write along these lines as well today. Uh, John MacArthur is one of those guys that has written along these lines. Very insightful. He takes it to us and says, you just Christianized the world, secular world view. You've not held a strong Christian view. So I think it's a good test of where we are spiritually when we ask ourselves fundamental questions. What's my chief end? What's my chief aim? Who controls the way I determine my priorities in life? The answer to these questions really determine where our heart is. Because where your heart is, as Jesus teaches, what? Where your treasures are. So will your heart be. So will your heart be. 
If you live for the things of this world, if you live to save up things in this world as your sole motivation, as your sole motivation of your existence, those are the wrong reasons. And there are three wrong reasons for this. First, you can't take it with you. Okay, I know that's a shock. Uh, you know, the old line, what, what did, uh, when uh, Rockefeller died, they asked his accountant how much did he leave, and the accountant said, all of it. Okay, all, all you have to do is look at the pyramids. They had all that stuff, the pharaohs had all that stuff stashed away in the pyramids that they were going to need in the afterlife. And when the archaeologists got there, what did they find? They found all the stuff. All the stuff was still there. Didn't they, didn't they use it in the afterlife? No, because they were dead. You left it here. Okay, all that stuff is still unused. So first, we can't take our treasures with us. Secondly, it's destructive to our spiritual life. All the energies focused upon keeping up in the earthly things, and they'll prevent us expending energy on, on the spiritual things. Prevent us thinking in spiritual ways because we're focused on speaking in earthly ways. Okay, he talks about focusing on the things which are above. So uh, what, how much portion of our life do we spend focused on earthly things versus focused on heavenly things? And thirdly, in the long run, it's disastrous because you can't serve two masters. You can only serve one master, and you have to follow what he says. The rich young ruler was very is very uh, good explanation about that, a good example of that. Young man's dreams of wealth, and he said, "Well, I've kept the law," and and Jesus says, "We'll sell it all, and we'll see whether you're really serious about your faith or not." And then the guy went away. Because he had a lot of stuff and he wasn't willing to part with it. And the issue was, wasn't so much that Jesus, now Jesus did say sell it and follow me. But it was really a test of his heart. Where was his heart? Where your treasures are, that's where your heart is going to be also. So if we concentrate on things above, it'll keep us from establishing the wrong priorities on the things below. So determine... Spiritual mindedness. How about that? That's what we need to have because it will not come easily. It will not come simply by, uh, I do a couple things and, and then my mind is set on Christ. No, you have to do it on a regular basis. You can't say, well, I go to church on Sunday so I'm spiritually minded. Uh, what happens the rest of the hours throughout the week? Do you focus your mind on the things of Christ? Do you take time each and every day? Do you have personal devotions? Do you have a prayer life? Um, what do you fill your mind with from the radio? Uh, and I, I've said this before, you know, I, I, I like talk radio, but there comes a point where I'm just so fed up with it that my worldview becomes so negative that I have to turn it off because everybody seems to be yelling at one another and, and, and it, news is bad news. So I turn on the Christian radio and it's like I've opened the car windows and fresh air has come in. And my heart is restored. And for three and four days, I won't listen to any news. I'll just take in pure, nothing but the things of Christ. And then I don't know why. Maybe I'm like an addict. I, after a couple of days, I feel good. And then I go back to it. Right? Oh, I've got a problem. I've got a problem, obviously. Well, you say, well, Rand, that's... But, but if I'm too heavenly minded, I'm what? No earthly good. Where is that? Is that, is that a, did we reference that? J. Vernon McGee, okay. Now, he's good, but he's not gospel, okay? Uh, now, if you, you go back and you look uh, at 
at those who were really heavenly minded. Were they no earthly good? Well, C.S. Lewis writes about that in Mere Christianity. He says, such a mindset has been the one most influential in changing this world for the better. Those who hearts, whose hearts were most sensitive to earthly concerns and abuses were invariably of a heavenly frame of mind. And then he goes on to cite a few, a few examples of people. William Wilberforce, the prison reformer, Elizabeth Fry, the founders of Children's Home, Bernardo and George Mueller, the founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth. Their minds were focused upon heavenly things, and what happened because their minds were focused on heavenly things? They changed the earthly world around them. So back to Colossians here. Now Colossians wants, and Paul wants us to understand that if we're going to live a Christian life that is mature and that glorifies God, and if we're going to think in ways that Christians should think, then it's important for us to have a mindset that is controlled by Christ, a mindset that is focused on heavenly things. And there are two verbs here that he uses. Look at verse 1. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking, that's the first one, which means keep on seeking. And, and that is one of those Greek verbs that says when you start it, the end does not come. It just continues to go on and on and on. So keep on seeking for how long? All of your life. It's not just a portion of your life. It is all your life. Keep seeking the things above. Why? Because that's where Christ is. He's seated at the right hand of God. And the second one is set your mind on the things above, not on the things below. So the first keep seeking has to do with desire. Desire. The second, set your mind, has to deal with what we think. And it has no relation to how many degrees you have or what schools that you have been to. It deals with the disposition of your mind. Now, why does Paul ask this question? Or why does he give this to them? Because the Colossians, and, and as they were growing, an influence had come into their church. And it was an influence of Gnosticism. And we see this a lot in the, in the first century of the New Testament. The Gnostics had this secret knowledge, and you couldn't actually get to the next spiritual level unless you got the secret knowledge. And the secret knowledge only came from the Gnostics, because they had the secret knowledge. So if you went and you spent time with them, you became one of them, you could get the secret knowledge. Unfortunately, there was really no secret knowledge to be had. Um, the secret knowledge is oh, right here in the open, right here in front of us. So Paul is very clear. Every Christian has the fullness of Christ within them. Turn to chapter 2, verse 9. Just up back one page there. Now, in fact, go to verse 8. We'll, we'll read that. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty, empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. He's addressing the Gnostics there rather than according to Christ. For in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. There is nothing else to add to Christ. It's not Christ plus secret knowledge. It's not Christ plus anything. It is Christ. He has come. This is his message. Dwell in it. Rejoice in it. Let it fill all that you are. Fix your mind upon it. Now, this is why 
this is why we're on this theme for many weeks and that is our union with christ because this is where this growth comes from to fix your mind on heavenly things you have to be united with christ now union with christ is described in scripture in many different ways jesus illustrates it talking about the vine and the branches you can't separate from the vine because if you do you'll die you have to be united with him as a vine and a branch paul talks about building up a building and and the the body of christ it are different parts of the building and we're all based upon what the cornerstone of jesus christ he also illustrates it in the metaphor of marriage being united with christ as a husband and a wife christ is the groom the church is the bride Uh, sometimes paul uses the uh, uh, body metaphor in this way Uh, christ is the head the church is the body Um, if he says Paul says, if you understand these things, you understand our union with Christ, you understand how important this is, then you won't fall prey to the false teachers. You won't be led astray by things. Same thing is true in this world. Uh, The Gnostics in our our day come in many different forms. They come in many different ways, and they infiltrate in us, and they want to take us away from the things of Christ. Take our minds away from the Christ. Christ. Maybe the Gnostics are talk radio today. Okay, and they want to take my mind away from Christ and focus it upon the world. And suddenly I see I'm hopeless. I've only, I'm only one person. What can I do in the world? I can't change things. Things are looking so bad. I uh, might as well, what, what? I don't know. I can move to Canada, but I don't want to live in Canada. It's cold. Okay? Um, but, but if you fix your mind on Christ, if you begin to fill your body and mind with all the things of Christ, then you understand Oh, gee, what's that? There's that passage in Ephesians chapter 3 that says, I can do above, well, more than above and beyond, more than anything, what, through Christ's strength? I, I, really? And what's the purpose of me doing all those things? It's for his glory. Okay? The Holy Spirit comes and dwells in me. You know, Jesus started with 12 guys, 12 guys, and one of them chunked it. Okay? And, and did he change the world? Yeah. Because he said, what? You will do greater things than me once I'm gone because who's going to come? The Holy Spirit comes. Now, Jesus was not saying you're going to do better miracles and you'll raise more people from the dead. That When he says greater, he means greater in number. Peter's first sermon. My goodness, Peter, the guy who was afraid to admit that he was a follower of Christ, a little servant girl, his first sermon after the coming of the Holy Spirit, how many people were added to the church that day? 3,000. I've never preached a sermon that good. Never. Okay? Never. But this is what it is. This is to be united with Christ. To be united with Christ doesn't mean that I cease to exist. Okay? And now when you look at me, all you see is Christ. Well, that would be an improvement. But that's not the way it is. When you marry a person, you do not cease to be an individual. But now you are united with that person. In, in a, uh, you're walking together in the same path of life. You, are, uh, you live in an intimacy that, that the rest of the world does not understand. There's a closeness you've never had before. When you are united with Christ, that is the same type of thing. We do not become Christ. As Christ does not become us. But Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, lives within us. Do you make your own decisions? Yes. Do you want to make them according to the things of Christ? Yes. Yes. 
we enter into a covenantal relationship whereby he is ours and we are his. And we are his. So Paul is exhorting these Corinthians to do certain things because they have the ability to do certain things. They have been raised. They have been buried. All of these things because Christ has done them, so we have done them as believers as well. We have been buried with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. So Paul builds really his entire understanding of sanctification on this truth, on this truth. And this is what he's introducing us to this in this passage. So the principal means of the believer's sanctification, and, and let me define it once again. Most of you know this. Justification happens in an instant. Boom, you are saved. You come to Christ. Your eyes are open, and you go, why didn't I ever see this before? Why didn't I ever know these things before? How is it that I never understood my sin before? It's because... Your eyes were closed because of your sin and the Holy Spirit comes and opens your eyes and you are saved in an instant. And then for the rest of your life, as Paul says, you are to keep on seeking. You are to grow in the things of Christ. Some days you grow very quickly. Other days you not so much. Okay, but our overall process, our overall path is more like Christ. That is sanctification. And that takes really our entire life. That will go, I should say, that goes on our entire lives. So our means of sanctification begins with our union with Christ. I go back to John Owen. He says, We do not grow in our sanctification when we are overly focused on our own spirituality. Sounds kind of strange, but wait for the answer. Spiritual growth comes as we gaze on the beauty and excellency of Christ. Spiritual growth comes as we gaze on the beauty and the excellency of Christ. Oh, I told you that Owens was hard to read. But what does that mean? Does that mean that I can just sit at home and, and in my mind's eye gaze upon Christ? Where do we find the beauty and the excellency of Jesus Christ? It was revealed to us in his word is revealed to us through the gathering of the body of Christ to worship. It is revealed to us in prayer. Those things are the means which we understand the beauty and the excellency of Christ. We can't just go and do the things and expect it to produce. You have to understand what it is that you're seeking. You're seeking more of Christ. You're seeking his beauty. You're seeking his excellency. Remember the prophet Isaiah writes, in what, 53, he had no beauty like we define it. But there was no one any more beautiful than Christ on the cross. There was no one any more beautiful. He never did any work more excellent than in the sacrifice of his life for us on the cross. One of my, my favorite contemporary guys is Sinclair Ferguson. He's a Scottish guy. And he writes, union with Christ in his death and resurrection is the element which Paul is most concerned. If we are united with Christ, then we are united with him at all points on, of his activity on our behalf. We share in his death. We've looked at that. We were baptized into his death. We share in his resurrection. We are resurrected with Christ. We share in his ascension. We have been raised with him. We share in his heavenly session. We sit with him in heavenly places so that our life is hidden with Christ in God. And we will share in his promised return. When Christ, who is our life, appears, we also will appear with him 
in glory. So it is Christ and his beauty and his excellency and all that he's done in our union with him that forms the very, very heart of our growth in Christ. No Christ, no growth in him. No union with Christ, no growth in him. No sharing of all these things, no union with him, no growth in him. Martin Luther, when he pounded the 95 Theses on the wall of uh, uh, the, the church at Wittenberg, the first one of the 95 says, O Lord and Master Jesus Christ, will that the entire life of the believers to be one of repentance. That's strange that you'd start with repentance. Does that mean we have to go around, you know, feeling sorry for everything that we do? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you know, I'm sorry for this, I'm sorry for that. Now, what Luther meant is that repentance is a way of making progress in the Christian life. It is a way, it's probably the best sign of our growing and of our maturing into the character of Jesus Christ when we understand the depth of our sin and when we understand this graciousness that is given to us. Because we can't understand grace if we don't think we have a need for it. Once you understand sin, you can understand grace. Yesterday, one of the questions was, well, what is sanctification? It's question 35 of the Catechism. What is sanctification? It is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. It's a continuing change worked by God in cooperation with our own will, freeing us from our sinful habits and forming within us those things that are Christ-like. So sanctification frees us, and it empowers us. Frees us from the old, empowers us from the new. It doesn't mean that sin is instantly and forever eradicated in our life. I mean, wouldn't that just be great? The day you become a believer, there's no more sin in your life. You never have a te- another temptation. You're just free to live the things of Christ. That's just not the way it happens. It is a struggle each and every day. Some of us have different struggles. Some of us struggles in areas over here that, that just seem we can't seem to get rid of, and others seem not to have a problem at all over here. Some of us struggle over here that, that you know, my struggles are not yours. You, you, I might mention some of the struggles I have, and you go, Randy, how could you struggle with that? I say, well, that's who I am. That's who I am. Sanctification is real transformation, not just the appearance of it. Remember Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs? They look good on the outside, but their hearts were rotten. Sanctification is not just an external whitewashing. Sanctification deals with our hearts. It deals with our priorities. It deals with all that we are, all that we're called to do. So what are the changes in a person's life? What, what should show in a person's life as they grow in the things of Christ? I just have three. I, I mean, we could make probably a long list. Just have three. First, as we grow in grace, it means an increase in our humility. An increase in our humility. And that doesn't mean you can walk around and say, look at me growing in grace. I'm pretty humble now. You know? <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm there. Watch me because you'll follow, follow me and, and I'll make, make sure you're humble. That's not what it is. It, it's, like, it's like this balance between these two things. The closer you walk with God the more sensitive you become to sin. 
The closer you walk with God, the more sensitive you become with sin. When you become sensitive to sin, your view of yourself begins to shrink. Your view of the importance of yourself begins to shrink. And your view of the importance of Christ begins to increase. John the Baptist said what? I have to increase, he has to... No, I have to decrease, he has to increase. Okay? So as your view of yourself begins to decrease, our love and gratitude... And, and understanding of God begins to increase. So one of the signs of sanctification is humility and a growing sense of humility. Those who are growing spiritually reduce their own pride, exalt God. Number two, the second one. Growth in grace means an increase in faith and less reliance upon the world around us. Less reliance upon the world around us. If you know about Pascal's wager. Pascal was a mathematician who came to Christ in a, in a light, lightning bolt fashion. He had a wager about, uh, basically it's summed up in this statement. What you have faith in is what you'd bet your life on. What you have faith in is what you would bet your life on. Growing in faith in the Lord of grace produces a willingness to enter into situations that you otherwise would not do. I'm not saying that, well, as I, you, you may not, as I become more spiritually sensitive, I have to risk my life. No, 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 not quite that. Uh, but what we're saying is that you begin to trust the Lord, and when the world thinks your actions may not be the smartest thing, but yet you're convinced because you have read and you have prayed and you have sought wise counsel and you've sought confirmation that the Lord is calling you to do something, he will protect you. He will guide your way. Abraham was called by the Lord to what? Go to a land that you've never been to before. Leave everything behind. Just, just you know, head off into where I'm going to take you. And what did he do? That's where he went. That's where he went. Faith like that puts obedience to the Lord as the top priority. Not security, but obedience to the Lord. And number three, growth in grace means an increase in love that gives. That gives. Gives of self, gives of everything that we have. Uh, often society can be divided into two things, the givers and the takers. Um, Christians are not supposed to be takers. We're supposed to be givers. It doesn't mean we're stupid givers. It means we're givers. Okay. But those who advance in Christ-likeness um, give in the sense that they re renounce the self-absorbed thing. The world is no longer about me. The world is about somebody else. And my whole life is to be dedicated to him. So how, okay, Randy, this, this is it. This is, this is the big finish here. How do I know if I'm growing in grace? I wish there was a clear objective standard. Well, didn't you just give us three things? What? Uh, humility, uh, less reliance upon world secu worldly security, uh, the increase in love and giving. Aren't those tangible things? Yes. Is there a tangible threshold where I'm, I'm humble enough? Or, uh, you know, somebody comes up to you and says, Randy, well, you're just, you're just so humble. And, and I say, well, yeah, oh, it just blew it out of the water. Okay? No longer am I humble. Um, is there an objective standard to these things? Well, that's hard because you'd like everybody else to see the godliness and the growth within you. But one of the problems is 
Some people are good at putting on the front. And they grow and they, they have every appearance of godliness. And they do the things and, and they are humble, but we don't know their heart. Their heart still might be carnal, might still be focused upon the self. And they have found a way to get ahead in life by pretending to be a Christian. Playing the part. You know, sounds like they're walking the walk, sounds like they're talking the talk. How do we judge their heart? We do not. Christ judges their heart. Now, am, am I saying, well, gee, sounds like no hope. Why should I even try to be sanctified? Well, Christ knows your heart. He knows when you're being humble because you've grown in your relationship with him. He knows when you're trusting in him, not just to get ahead in some way, but because you really want to do what he wants you to do. Okay? Growth and grace sometimes can be a tough measurement. But I bet in your life, if I asked you for five people who are the Christians you like to be like, wouldn't be hard to come up with those five. Wouldn't be hard to say, yeah, when I grow up, I want to be like that person. Because over the course of time, you have seen them again and again reflect the things of Christ. And for the people that are coming behind us, the ones who are younger than us, the ones who are going to walk in our footsteps, we have to ask the question, am I living the life that I want them to walk? Now, we'll never do it perfectly, but are they going to want to be in my footsteps? That's what Paul's calling us to. That's what Christ enables us to do. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is uh, uh, such a great passage for us, Lord. And, and, and we've just scratched it. But we understand that none of this happens without union with Christ. That we need to keep on seeking Christ. Fix our minds on the things above. For if our minds and our hearts are focused on where they should be, we will do such great things in this world. Not like we're going to leave this world behind. This is where we are. And you have a call for us here. Lord, sometimes that call is, is to do great things in, in the eyes of the world, big things like, like Mueller and, and, these, and, and Booth and these other guys who, who changed many lives. Sometimes it is simply to walk the walk that you lay before us, to demonstrate holiness, to demonstrate our love for Christ. And, and, and perhaps there's one, maybe there's two or three people who will walk after us and say, that's who I want to be like when I grow up. That's an example of the Christian life. And Lord, whether we ever know this or not, whether we ever know the people who walk in our footsteps or not, our hearts need to be set on you, on what you have for us. For you not only call us to live in a certain way, but you give us the ability to do so. So Heavenly Father, as we fix our minds on the things above and apply them in the things here, we will trust in you and watch you work through just even the likes of us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.